Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Listen up. Any signal. Remember, any signal. Gun, double right, close. Gun, double right, close. Half back right. 200 scat. Trouble slant. Thunder. In the name of Lord Jesus Christ, let's go. <laughs> Excuse me. What is it, Wolf? we got to get up to the line. I don't believe in God or Allah or the divinity of Jesus. So. Wolf, this is the NFL. This is football. you got to believe that stuff. It's mandatory. Well, I don't. And if there's a God, why is he watching football when there are so many other things he could be doing? Look... I don't want to have to burn a time out, but you should definitely read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Is that the Narnia dude? But he's so much more than that. I I think it's okay if Wolf doesn't believe. In Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Right. So if Wolf makes the catch and scores on this play, that proves it's God's will and Jesus is divine. Oh, come on now. Don't put that on me. Can we talk about the commercialization of everything? In Mark 4.19, Jesus says, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. I feel like we serve Pepsi, not God. We just got flagged for delay of game. But this is so much more important. I mean, let's really talk about this stuff. Meanwhile, today on The Scramble, the NFL confronts its first atheist player. We take a warm bath in summer TV, and Bernie Sanders' disciples build a Connecticut team. And now he thought the Arizona Cardinals was a Catholic retirement community. Colin McEnroe. That's right. A little bit later in the show today, we'll uh, catch up with TV critic Roger Catlin, who I think is on the West Coast, looking at the rollouts of some of the fall stuff, but also reflecting on on summer TV, which is sort of a different thing than it used to be. And then towards the end, I mean, it really is true here in Connecticut, the only presidential candidate on either side of the aisle who has a really active, rumbling, uh, enthusiastic fan base and an organization is Bernie Sanders. I mean, unless I'm missing somebody, uh, I know there's somebody working for, you know, Marco Rubio and stuff, but it seems like it's Bernie. It's like outnumbers everybody 300 to one in terms of having people getting excited. So we'll talk to one or two of his supporters towards the end. I'm really excited, though. We're beginning with Tim Kuhn. Uh, He's a senior writer for ESPN. I am a longtime fan. Uh, on an old radio station where I used to have to do a daily sports segment. It may have been the case that I reworded some of his excellent jokes from his old page two column, but I think the time window for him to file a lawsuit has now closed. Uh, We're uh, here today not to talk about that, but to talk about uh, his piece about Arian Foster. Uh, He's a senior writer for ESPN, as I said before. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Colin. So, um... Arian Foster is somebody that we uh, know if we are football fans uh, for his slashing running style. Uh, he plays for Houston. Uh, he's pretty great. Uh, until I read your piece, I had not realized, A, that he's kind of a, um, a, a rebellious guy uh, in a very generalized sense, and then very specifically uh, a guy who's willing to openly challenge this notion that, that the NFL uh, and Jesus walk pretty much hand in hand. So, so prior to your piece, how well was this known among, let's say, NFL fans, for starters? Well, Colin, I think his, his uh, sort of iconoclasm was pretty well known. He's been pretty open about speaking his mind about social issues and 
and uh, sort of popping bubbles where they need to be popped. He, he has come out and said that he took impermissible benefits when he was playing at Tennessee and sort of did it. He delivered that news sort of unapologetically, so that, was, that kind of got people's attention. Um, you know, he's always, he's always sort of tiptoed around this idea of being, um, you know, a non-believer, as he puts it. Uh, he sort of stays away from the term atheist, but that's the language he speaks is the language of atheism. So he's been, you know, he has always, he's talked about religion in the, in the locker room. He's, he's sort of, you know, talked about how he doesn't hold conventional beliefs. But this is the first time that he's come out directly and said, here I am. I'm a guy who has played my whole, you know, public football career in the Bible Belt, first in Tennessee and now in Houston, and, and I don't believe. And, uh, you know, let's, let's all try to make the world a little bit easier for, uh, for both sides by accepting each other. So, you know, he's, he's been known as a, as a different guy and as someone who's not only different but is willing to be perceived as different, which I think are two different things, especially in sports, since so many athletes stay away from saying anything controversial. He's pretty well known in that regard, but I think this time he's sort of, you know, I, I think uh, probably no longer a secret at this point. So let's hear what he's butting up against. Here's sort of how athletes talk about God uh, in a, the course of a typical athletic event. I want to first thank God because through him all things have been possible in my life. God is absolutely amazing. You know that God's in control whether you win or lose, and I think that helps with you know me at the end of games. First of all, I just want to thank God for this opportunity. God want us to win the world championship. <laughs> I don't know if I go that far, Charles. No, no. But, I talked to him the other night. All right, the last, of course, is Charles Barkley, who does, in fact, uh, get uh, direct audiences with God whenever he wants them. Um, so this is, I mean, you know, it's it's sort of a joke, uh, Tim Kuhn, and sort of not a joke. I mean, it's sort of a joke to, in fact, suppose, and Arian Foster does bring this up in your article, that God wouldn't have something better to do if he existed than worry about the outcome of games. He should be worried about uh, starvation and cataclysm uh, around the world. But it's also, it's this is really embedded in sports, and as you say, probably nowhere more deeply embedded than in the NFL. Is there any kind of working hypothesis about why it's the NFL as opposed to Major League Baseball? I don't know. I mean, I think there might be more involved in, in the, it, football is so much more of a physical sport. There's so much more potential for injury that, uh, you know, there might be just more of a reflexive need to sort of thank God for making it through the day, you know. I mean, I think that that could be part of it. Um, you know, but it's those words that we were listening to are, are things that we have just become uh, numb to, right? But I think when you're someone like Arian Foster and you're on the other side, you hear those things more than, than we do, you know, more than a, than a Christian does. Or, you know, if you're inside that game and yet you're not part of that certain culture, I think it's there's a part that can you could probably feel a little bit alienated. And I think that uh, I think that's where he's coming from with a, a lot of this. And, you know, football football has always embraced sort of the military industrial complex and and i think the the god and country stuff goes hand in hand and i think it's become you know even if even if someone's not maybe as devout as they as they say they are i think it's become something that they feel almost obligated to do is to thank god after after they win a game and in some ways i mean it it, it almost diminishes religion because it seems so flippant and sort of I don't know, just just sort of uh, unnecessary to to talk about that, and and you know it it, it sort of invites 
you know, mockery in some ways when, you know, God wanted us to win the, the championship. It's, it's just a, it, it just seems to sort of belittle the whole concept and probably makes it easier for someone like Arian to argue with his teammates in the locker room about, you know, what God's mission is if, if he or she does exist. Um, it, it could be that, I mean, famously, you know, there are no atheists in the foxholes. It could be that football is simply the most violent and dangerous uh, of all games, uh, therefore all the more reason to, to ally yourself with the most powerful entity that you can think of. There's also you know, been, been this long linkage between football and the presidency, football and presidential politics. Nixon actually designed a play for the Redskins to run, but typically pre-Barack Obama uh, presidents were pretty interested in football. And it's always been said that well, the one thing we will never have, uh, or it'll be a long time before the U.S. has an atheist president. You just it, you can't get away with it. It's the one thing that you can't say you are. And, and so I wonder about this in the NFL. I mean, what are the likely consequences? I think there's probably plenty of NFL players who have a soft, if not agnostic, faith. I don't know what Aaron Rodgers thinks about God and never heard him say a word about it, you know? Um, but but to, to get up in, in, a little bit more in the face of this whole question, I don't know. You say that he, he you quote him as being wonder, wondering, well, what's going to happen to endorsements? What's going to happen to this? What's gonna, will it matter at all? I think it remains to be seen. It's probably, it'll probably be determined, Colin, by how he handles the, the aftermath, you know, and, and because he was unfortunately injured last week and had surgery on Friday, there hasn't been much uh, response from him to this point. But, you know, I think that there will be, you know, in terms of local things, there might be some people that are a little bit hesitant to attach his name to their product. Um, and then there might be some that are that are driven to do it because of because of his openness and his his the way that he decided to, to make this this public so i don't know i mean i i don't know how much he really depends on endorsements or cares about endorsements he's a pretty frugal guy and and i don't know that he's been lending his name to that many things in houston he's, he's definitely not a national figure in terms of endorsements commercial endorsements but um you know i would imagine that the football related things that he has whether it's Gloves and shoes and all that will stay the same, but there might be some hesitancy on the outside to link him to a product if in, in Houston just for fear of, of what somebody might say. You know, I, Richard Dawkins lost his toothpaste commercial contract. I know that. Um, but we should say, actually, one of the things that emerges in your piece, we're talking to Tim Kuhn, a senior writer for ESPN, uh, one of the things that emerges in your piece is this guy is, I mean, he's he's not a casual, if he's an atheist, and he doesn't especially like that word at the moment, if he's an atheist, he's A, not an atheist provocateur. So he's not Sam Harris. He's not Richard Dawkins. He's not going to run around and, and make a huge deal out of this outside of his conversations with you. And he's, I mean, he's not casual about it either. I mean, he's very conversant with the work of Richard Dawkins. He's really interested in what Neil deGrasse Tyson has to say about a scientific view of the universe. This is a guy who, who's as likely to be at a Neil deGrasse Tyson lecture as studying his playbook, although the two are not exclusive of one another. I mean, it, it, once again, I found that surprising. Maybe that's some, something football fans knew about him. Well, I think that not, not to the extent that we were able to get into it in this in this piece. I think he's He's been known as a thinker. He's gotten some mileage out of the fact that he writes some poetry, and he's been, you know, he's a he's a pretty a, a good, you know, he reads a lot, that kind of thing. But uh, as far as you know, going to this, going to see Neil deGrasse Tyson instead of going to a D'Angelo concert, which was the decision he made that night, 
Um, I think that's kind of a uh, that's probably a new thing, and it's it's refreshing for people to see that that he's that conversant in so many different things, and he's not making these decisions lightly. You know whether you know you can argue his his opinions and and his beliefs all you want, but the fact is he's come to them through through study. And uh, interesting that he was raised a Muslim, so he was a little bit. He was a little bit of an outsider to begin with, you know, especially in, you know, places like Albuquerque and where he grew up. And I think that that has led him to be more of a, a, a student of, of religion. And, um, you know, he's read the Bible. He's read the Quran. He's very he's very smart about these things. And he has in many ways, many over many years, used them as uh, used his knowledge to sort of jab at people and to catch them in hypocrisies and so forth. And I think part of the reason that he decided to come out and, and discuss this was because he's trying to sort of soften a little bit and be someone that is more, he's asking for acceptance and in some ways pledging it as well, because he's, uh, he understands that he's been a little bit difficult uh, in locker rooms and so forth. And as I write in the, in the piece, there's probably not anyone who's shared a locker room with him who's, who's been who would be surprised to know that that he does that he is a non-believer? Um, I want to circle back to that uh, in just a second, uh, Tim Kuhn. Although I do want to say bad decision. I've seen uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He tours all the time. D'Angelo tours like once every seven years. And Amer- <laughs> American Messiah is an amazing CD. I think maybe Arian uh, made the wrong move on, on that one. So one of the words that we've become accustomed to seeing about the NFL anytime there's anything that runs contrary to this military industrial complex uh, mindset is distraction, right? Michael Sam's going to be a distraction. Uh, So I'm sure there's people thinking, well, Arian Foster is going to be a distraction. Although what I've heard, I think Mike Pesco was the one to say, and when you really know about the focus of these guys, about what it takes to be that competitive, that dialed in, to, to compete at that level, the idea that they're going to be distracted by stuff like that is kind of ridiculous. I mean, they, they are, they're thinking about their game and about winning in a way that we're not accustomed to in our jobs where we might be distracted. I mean, do you think the word distraction is going to come up here? It may come up, but I don't think it will be valid. I, I, I think that word is sort of an outsider's construct. I think that inside a locker room or a major league clubhouse, I think that the idea of a distraction is is really kind of overblown. I mean, the distraction in some cases is being asked to discuss whether something's going to be a distraction or not. Um, but I do think that, you know, I think that these guys are – they're more adult than we give them credit for in a lot of ways. I think that they also handle their business individually more than we than we expect. I don't think that I, I don't think that the guy that's you know the the offensive tackle is looking across the locker room and you know deciding in his mind whether he's going to block for the guy who doesn't believe in God. You know, I just don't think that's a distraction that that these guys even consider. I think they're all. They're all playing for their jobs. They're all playing for their next contract, and they're they're playing to win. So, you know, I, I you know the fact that he's hurt sort of makes the point moot. He's going to be out for probably a minimum of two months. So, I think the distraction is something that probably would have been relevant in this week and last week when when the story first broke. But I think by the time he comes back, I don't I don't think that distraction thing is is even even going to come up. I, I never bought into that uh, rumor that the, the uh, theology of Hans Kung had really dis- divided the 86 Bengals uh, locker room. <laughs> so uh, so I'm with you on that. Although I, I did note, I mean, you, you referenced the fact that he, he has an injury now. And I did note 
uh, in a piece uh, located near yours, the the owner of the team kind of sighing and saying, we're all getting very used to the Arian Foster soft tissue injury at the beginning of the season. It's just sort of part of our agrarian calendar here. Um, and, and, and you almost, I could almost hear the, you know, the implied, and maybe he should just shut up about all this stuff and do a few more stretches or something. I, I, you do sort of wonder, I mean, particularly if he remains injury-plagued, how much people do in their invidious way start to link one thing with another. Oh, definitely, and that's already that's already happened on social media, and I've gotten emails from people, you know, that this was <laughs> this was retribution, you know, that this guy got hurt the day before this story posted online, and yeah, I I, uh, I think the linkage is a little dubious at best. Um, you do kind of um, you do describe this really fascinating relationship that he has for at least one season with this other player who's uh, on the team for that one season, and it's kind of a Freud and C.S. Lewis uh, debate. You know, they're kind of this is a guy who is really serious about his faith, but really serious about his faith in a way that it, that's open to discussion. And I mean, once again, I think most people's mental picture uh, of an NFL locker room doesn't necessarily include this idea of these two guys having this long set of very serious uh, and often scripture-based conversations uh, about, you know, the deepest questions of life. Uh, I, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think, Colin, I think I do because it was such a, you know, there's always a point when you're reporting a story where you hit something and you think, you know, you just want to sort of get away from the person you're interviewing and sort of just do a little fist pump because you feel like you really got something you can, that, that sort of elevates the story. And I, and I felt that way when Arian was discussing his relationship with Justin Forsett, who was on the team for one year, a fellow running back, um, because Forsett is the son of a preacher, a very devout young man who would enter into these, as you say, these sort of involved and, and lengthy, sometimes days-on-end discussions about religion and morality and, and whether they are one can be there without the other. And, and uh, you know, I, I found it you know, I found it really fascinating, and it sort of humanized both men, I felt, and but it also gave some context to the way that Arian thinks, is that he was able to have these conversations that, in many ways, as Forsett said, it made him a stronger Christian. Instead of saying, oh my gosh, I, I've seen the light and Arian is correct, it was like he was he was forcing him through these challenges to sort of go back into his faith and and sort of reflect on things that he might not have thought of and it and it actually made him stronger in his beliefs and and you know Arian talks about how Forsett is very uh, accepting and non-judgmental and says that he wants him that that he would like him to feel the the feeling and the spirituality that he feels because he he not not that he feels he's going to go to hell without it but just that it means so much to him that he would like to have someone his friend feel the same way and and arian's response was that that was like the most divine thing he'd ever been (laughs) approached with and that he'd ever heard and and so i think this relationship really gets to the heart of just this sort of acceptance and the fact that people can find common ground and that they can they can sort of exist within this culture of football and and you know to extend it to to our country with these different beliefs and still and still respect each other. So yeah, that that uh, that was a that was a very important to me a very important part of the piece was to get their relationship out there and and uh, sort of delve into it a little bit. 
All right. We've got a, a call coming in from Eileen. I think this is a theological perspective as opposed to a, a football perspective, although she does have something to say about gap responsibility in the 3-4, too. Hi, Eileen. Hi, Colin. Thank you for having me. Um, can you hear me? Yes, just fine. Good. Well, here's, here's my thought. Um, I, I just want to address the fact that God uh, is totally aware of the of football games, at the same time totally aware of all the wars, all the good things, the good weather today, at the same time aware of you and me. And not only aware, but totally present. And the reason is that God is simple. A thing that's simple has no parts. If it had parts, it would be corruptible. God can't be corruptible. That's a that's a terrific that's a, that is a terrific perspective, Eileen. First of all, I want to thank you for it very much. I think it's the kind of thing that Arian Foster would uh, enjoy discussing with you, uh, and you'd make a formidable conversation partner for him. So, thank you so much for calling the show today. We also have to thank uh, Tim Kuhn. Uh, Eddie Lacy's running some uh, Kierkegaard discussion groups for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, Tim has to fly out uh, and attend those immediately. But Tim, great piece, uh, longtime fan. Great to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Colin. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, We're going to take a little break. Uh, We're going to hold our breath. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about summer TV and maybe what's coming in the fall, too. Roger Catlin knows about both. All right. Uh, last night uh, was a hallmark moment in this summer's uh, TV se- uh, season uh, as uh, True Detective Season 2 ended. We found out that the guy in the bird mask was actually Jim Chapdelaine from The Nose and that we probably shouldn't have even cared who the guy in the bird mask was in the first place. But summer TV is different now uh, and now joining us to talk about summer TV. And also he's in a place where he uh, can know more than you know about what's coming this fall is Roger Catlin, freelance writer whose work regularly appears in The Washington Post, blog about television at Roger Catlin, that's with a C, dot uh, com, uh, and he joins us from the TV Critics Summer Press Tour in Los Angeles. You, Many of you will remember uh, Roger's long tenure writing about television right here in this market. So, Roger, welcome back to the Connecticut Airwaves. Hello, Colin. How are you? Just fine. So, you know, summer television, when you and I were growing up, was this kind of a vast wasteland within a vast wasteland. Um, I mean, there's every once in a while was kind of a innovative, perky little summer replacement series that was put on that didn't have a chance of survival in any other context. But you know, not much there. And now it's its own thing, right? There's sort of there's just this summer season that, in some ways, can be at times as interesting as the regular season. Is there even any point in making those kinds of demarcations anymore? Well, I I think networks have always said, you know, we're uh, going year round. We're not a we're not a thing of just the, uh, a season anymore. Uh, you know, viewers won't stand for reruns in the summer. But you know, the fact of the matter is, they the reason I'm here for the press tours. They're talking about the fall and uh, what they're showing on the air and the networks broadcast networks anyway is is not the kind of stuff they'd show in the fall, they, you know, the kind of reality shows. And, uh, you know, they're usually kind of bad uh, uh, attempts at scripted shows that they sometimes they buy from other markets, other uh, countries, but uh, they occasionally get good ones by mistake. 
Well, I mean, in, in the sort of the whole cable universe, I mean, you really, it is hard to make a distinction. I, you know, True Detective, although, I mean, I think a lot of us felt it was an unsuccessful series uh, this season, uh, is, you know, I mean, it has an awful lot of, of critical credibility in general. And I don't know. I mean, I'm really enjoying Ray Donovan and Masters of Sex. And I mean, those sure. all seem like things that could really run at any time of year. Yeah, I think I think cable especially has uh, followed this uh, idea that you just, uh, you know, you run your things all year round, and and uh, I don't know—is summer a better time for TV uh, than the fall? I guess people are on vacations, but on the other hand, they're also still looking for stuff to watch. Um, with things streaming, they can watch anything, anytime, right? Right. And so now people are in an odd. People who are listening to this segment, uh, we're about to thrust them into an odd dilemma. Should you try to catch up on a summer series that Roger's about to mention, or should you try to ca- capture uh, catch up on one of the shows that's starting in late September or early October that he's also going to mention to you that maybe you haven't watched? Either way, you're probably screwed. You're going to have to watch 33 episodes of something that you've never seen before. So among the things that you watched this summer, uh, Roger, w- w- did anything stand out? I'm a fan of the show Rectify mm-hmm. on Sundance, which nobody ever knows. But it's it's a very thoughtful, uh, kind of quietly paced show about a guy who was on death row and, and uh, comes out and, and tries to make a life uh, 25 years later. Um, and uh, people are still trying to get him back into jail, and his family's trying to adjust to him being back, and he's trying to adjust to be back. It's, it's, uh, it's good stuff. Um, very low-key, but... Um, I enjoy it. You know, I didn't. I, I'm very intrigued by the True Detective. Mm. I didn't hate it as much as everybody else. Uh, there's a lot there. It's very dense. It's complicated. It's, but the performances are, are very good. I mean, last night's finale was just so visually striking. There was hardly any dialogue. Right. I. I. It, it grew on me a little bit. I will say. It had sort of the mumblecore problem. I know two people, yeah. one of them being Heather Brandon, who is a not an old person like me, uh, who watched it with closed captioning <laughs> because they couldn't yeah. understand the mumbling. Yes, that they, he might have overdone the noir uh, mumbling a little bit. Uh, Vince Vaughn was getting into it a little too much, too, uh, to be believable, maybe. But, um, uh, you know, it had ambition, and... Uh, uh, that's a good thing, you know, because uh, a lot of times on television they just they're very lazy and they they put on what uh, they think people will like or have liked in the past, and that brings us back to network television, I guess. Right. Well, I, I will say anyway, if people are wondering whether or not to take a stab at True Detective, be prepared to be confused a lot. But the performances are really good, and I, I do think Vince Vaughn. I've seen him once before in a dramatic role in which I thought he was very good too, and he, he certainly. You know, I, he, he had a lot of. Uh, by the end of it, I really thought, I, okay, I understand this character. I believe in this character the way you should. So, you know, he's done his job. Yeah, and they take chances on that show. It, it's a different story every season. I haven't heard if there's going to be a third season. I imagine there will be. Uh, it's written by one person. Last season was written and and directed. Uh, uh, there was one director for the whole season too. That wasn't the case this season. But you know, there's a central vision to the whole thing, which I think is a great. I think Rectify is that way too. I think those are the shows to pay attention to, where somebody sits down and writes the whole season rather than having a writer's room and you know, kind of going here and there. And and part of that is having shorter seasons too, just so they can kind of handle a whole story. Uh, you know, in 12, six or 12 episodes rather than 
24. You know, I want to go back to Rectify for a second. That's a that's a show. I have a little bit of a problem, and I think I think I might not be the only one. There's so much choice these days. There's so many things that you could conceivably watch, and I've fallen into this bad habit of I guess it's a bad habit of watching four to six episodes of something, and even if I think it's kind of okay, I'll just stop because I, I, there's just so many other things that I could conceivably do. Yeah, on to the next thing. And so I did watch quite a bit of Rectify and thought it was really good. And an attempt has been made, as you probably know, to connect it stylistically or at least in in, in matters of, of subject to uh, to serial, uh, to the even to the extent of uh, I think one of the creators of Rectify starting her own podcast that mimics a little bit this, uh, the style of Sarah Koenig. Right. And, and so that's that might be enough to lure a certain kind of person, maybe maybe me, back into the Rectify web. Well, I think when it was coming back this season, they they put together a little a uh, little thing that was exactly like serial uh, uh, to just kind. Of, I mean, it was a clever way of of updating everybody on the story and doing it in that style. I don't think there's anything in the show itself that reflects that. It's just I think it's all in their promotion department. Have mm-hmm. this kind of extra stuff around the show to kind of. Uh, create a little buzz or get some audience they didn't have before. So one of the things that I've been noticing uh, is that, I mean, we know that the nerds have inherited the earth, and usually when we say that we're talking about the fact that comic book franchises and sci-fi and stuff has taken over. But now the nerds are being elevated to the status of heroes and and, and leading players. And this, you know, was happening a bit in comedies like Silicon Valley, but now it's Halt and Catch Fire and Mr. Robot. These are not... A uh, series in which tech nerds are played for uh, for comedy. Uh, maybe you can say a little bit more uh, about what's going on with these. It's funny how they use computers in all these shows, procedural shows. I mean, they make the computers look flashy. Normally, they have the screen on a piece of glass and they can point to it. Uh, but it's, it's crazy because so much of our lives are, are online and, uh, you know, in front of computer screens. <laughs> There's no way to really kind of translate that into kind of some dramatic uh, action. So, I mean, the things about computers, yeah, they make sense and they're relevant. And uh, Halt and Catch Fire, I think, is kind of an underrated show uh, about that and, and kind of uh, similar to Silicon Valley in, in, the, in a way. Uh, some of the storylines were exactly the same this this year by accident probably but um it's about tech people doing a startup right or uh, yeah yeah and they're burning down the house almost with all the electricity they're putting in there but you know it's 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 interesting stuff and i don't think it's um i mean it's about something different it's about it's not a cop and it's not a uh, a hospital drama um you know it's it's about it's about something that we're we all have our hands on every day um so 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 that's interesting about it now, with Mr. Robot, first of all, I have to say that there's um, an aesthetic, a human aesthetic that has been, for the most part, I think, undocumented. But I'm going to bring it up right now. And it, it, it involves people like Lizzie Kaplan from Masters of Sex, Zoe Deschanel, certainly Emma Stone. These, that's sort of that big-eyed, almost pop-eyed uh, kind of look. Um, and uh, to me, Mr. one of the things that's going on with Mr. Robot is that they said, what if we did a whole series in which like everybody had kind of big eyes but sort of heavy-lidded big eyes, too? Uh, so, so like the eyeballs on Mr. Robot, I'm finding kind of distracting. I don't know if if they're a metaphor for what happens when you look at your computer screen too long. But this is a, a, a it. It also reminds me a lot of the old old Darren Aronofsky movie Pi. This kind of black and white movie about 
you know, paranoia and hacking and flipping out about math and stuff. There's this is uh, I don't know. You're a TV critic. Explain to people what Mr. Robot is. Well, it's about a hacker uh, who is um, he's inside of a regular corporation and uh, he is uh, enlisted to help a, a network of hackers to actually go after these this. I think it's actually called Evil Corp, right? Yep. <laughs> kind of pushing things a little bit. Actually, yeah. uh, uh, while you gather yourself for the rest of your explanation, let's hear just a little bit from Mr. Robot. Submit to a bi-monthly drug test voluntarily. That's the only way that I'll recommend your release. Hospitals. A heavily networked one like this are almost too easy to hack. This is William Highsmith. He's not only the head of the IT department here, he is the IT department. He's also an idiot. Not that I blame him, because the people that hire him are also idiots. The poor guy only gets a budget of about 7000 bucks a year, and he's supposed to protect their network from people like me. He never stood a chance. Um, that, by the way, is the lead character, and that's about as much emoting as he ever does. He never really kind of ventures out of that monotone. And, Roger, I don't know if you've noticed this, but that the kind of burbly little techno soundtrack that the, the show prefers, I noticed that they'll bleed that over across about three scenes, you know? Uh, I mean, the scene, musical theme that's going blue, 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 they'll, it'll be in a hospital, in a car, and someplace else. They, they won't change it. Somehow or other, it kind of sort of thematically links what's going on. But uh, so do, do you like Mr. Robot? Are you a fan? I, I, li- I like how it's so distinctive, especially on USA, which it kind of uh, has been making its way with kind of shiny, uh, humorous, almost lighthearted detective stories uh, and doing pretty well with it um, for years. And here's something very different, very dark. Uh, the acting of the lead character, uh, the lead actor, uh, Rami Malek, is, is, uh, is really striking. I don't know any show that has Christian Slater in it is doomed. Right. Well, uh, so <laughs> that's a problem. Well, everybody in the show is doomed anyway. You feel as though no one's coming out of this in a good place. And I agree. I think didn't USA do Burn Notice? Yeah. Okay. So, and you may remember infamously Saturday Night Live had a uh, quiz show called "What Is Burn Notice?" They were trying to figure out what it actually was. Um, and I do think this is a totally a nice switch away from that kind of stuff. You do feel as though something interesting and deeply paranoid is happening here. But you, there's also kind of an unreliable narrator issue, right? Can can you trust the focus of the main character, or could this be some weird? I mean, he's a drug a drug addict and a hacker, and God knows what else. Can you even trust the person? Person that you need to trust. Yeah, you've got to go along on the ride with him to kind of figure it out. I, the thing to, for people to know about the show is that it doesn't involve robots. No, no, there are no computers robots. They work on. There are two, at least two other series. This, uh, or maybe three, if you call battle, if you include BattleBots, there are about robots. But this one is not. Well, what Westworld is coming? Did you get to? Have you gone to the the, the do a teaser out on the coast for Westworld yet? Uh, they started a clip of it and. Um, you know, it's pretty crazy, and it's and it's. I think they're disassociating themselves from the the movie a little bit. Mm-hmm. I guess because people, most people die in the movie. I don't remember, but uh, it's pretty it's pretty lavish, you know. Yeah. Um, this is a new HBO series, and it is based on was it like Yul Brynner in Westworld? I mean, this is like a really old old robot movie. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, Yul Brynner, old an old sci-fi thing about uh, robots recreating a Western scene in the future that you go and visit. 
And it's much more psychological than that, it seems, in, in this uh, HBO version. That is, uh, is it J.J. Abrams who's doing it? I think it might be, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, it looks interesting. People are very interested in seeing more of it. So, uh, the thing I saw, I did yeah. see the first episode of that I'm very excited about for this fall is Fargo, new season, mm. different year, mm-hmm. whole new cast. Oh, whole new cast, wow. You know, it it goes back. It goes back to um, uh, the uh, the woman Molly's father, who was a police the police officer turned diner owner, um, David Carradine. Last year, when he was younger, he he keeps talking about this case back that he had in Luverne, Minnesota, and this goes back to 1979. Hmm. Uh, for that case, and and uh, and it and it and it explores this whole time uh, from the end of the '70s to the beginning of the '80s, where the country turned into this kind of Reaganite uh, world. And in fact, Ronald Reagan appears in the new Fargo. Um, oh, character playing. Him. I was going to say the ultimate cameo. <laughs> so um, yes, I have, I have to admit that I I, I I had the same experience with Fargo, except that I didn't have the experience of really really liking it and just wanting to continue. You didn't it like just Fargo. It, it just didn't work for me. No, and I, I couldn't even really explain why. I, I do want to say that um, we're talking to Roger Catlin right now. We now know that on October fourth, the world will come to an end, or at least there'll be some kind of black hole because the Good Wife comes back, Homeland comes back, the leftovers the leftovers come back the affair comes back so that's going to be uh and those are series where in fact you know not everybody stayed with them some people never started them of that of that particular group is they're all coming back on the same night is there one that you would recommend that maybe people even try to catch up on before the fall comes uh i think the best of these shows all try to make them accessible for everybody when they come back for a new season uh, especially Homeland, they you know they have new stories that carries them through one season. So I think if you've never seen that, you can kind of jump in and be pretty sure she's, right away who she's, all the yeah, characters are. She's crazy. Peter's in love with her. Mandy Patinkin's like always unhappy no matter what's happening. That's pretty <laughs> much even, covers it. Even the leftovers, as complicated and uh, mysterious as that was, and with a lot of things left unexplained last season really reboots this second season, what I've seen. They move to Texas. Mm -hmm. There's a town in Texas where people haven't been disappeared. So they all go there to to start, you know, to start over. And uh, the real reason is because production values are much less in Texas than they are in upstate New York. But they're rewriting the story. You know, they've gone way beyond the original novel and kind of winging it out, out there now. Well, also, so, I can tell from the trailers, which I've seen, they're making a the very smart move. More Carrie Coons as Nora. Uh, oh, she's fantastic. She's the yeah. best best character on this, and it looks like we're going to get a lot more of it. We're going to have to get a little less of this uh, as we're winding up here, Roger, although I do have one comment uh, that came up on our website. Uh, somebody who has a good example of a show uh, that they started watching and then stopped in the middle of. It's The Last Man on Earth. That's the Will Forte, Kristen Schaal vehicle. Uh, this person complains that then someone else shows up and then someone else shows up and then another person shows up on the last person on earth <laughs> well they're lying about the title yeah and I- uh well you know you could say that about mr robot but i think that is a very funny and very different comedy from from uh fox i mean it's it plays like a like a comedy like a you know a big screen comedy uh then there are more characters coming this next season but I, but that was a very i mean i don't 
maybe they just think they stopped in the middle because there, I think there were only six episodes right. of the well, first season to begin with. I would watch Kristen Schaal do just about anything, including scream, scream about tomatoes or whatever she's doing on that series. Roger Catlin, thanks so much for joining, joining us. Catch up with Roger Catlin at rogercatlin.com, and he will tell you how to catch up with everything else. We're going to catch up with the Bernie Sanders movement in Connecticut after this. I was not caught, though many tried. I'll live among you. I only just now found out that The Leftovers is not a Food Channel show. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, Tucker Ives, and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Hallie St. Germain and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in the intro with Tucker and Josh Nalea. The part of Phil Curry was played by Lance Armstrong. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making a rapture omelet, the egg goes to heaven and you eat the shell, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, we're live from New Haven with Mary Jane Foster. And now, back to Colin. And I do want to say it's great to have Kion Wolf back after her two-week vacation, although it means I have to write material for her, which interferes with my morning drinking. No more Bombay, Bombay Sapphire at 11 a.m. Got to write the script. I did enjoy the, the relaxation, but I missed the voice. So it's great to have her and uh, Greg uh, back. And you may tweet at us. By the way, you may have trouble tweeting right now because we're about to talk about Bernie Sanders in Connecticut, and they may have broken Twitter because they're tweeting at us. But if you want to try to tweet at our tweet master, QB1 Greg Hill, it's at WNPR Colin because we are going to talk about Bernie Sanders in Connecticut. And they do love their Twitter. Uh, they do love to uh, to make with the social media. So joining us right now are two supporters here in Connecticut of Leo Canty, of Leo Canty, of uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Leo Canty uh, and Audrey Blondin, they've both run for office uh, in the past, and they've both been very active in Democratic politics, and now they are active on behalf of Bernie Sanders. So, Audrey Blondin, I'm going to start with you. You know, I mean, the wisdom uh, in Connecticut typically is we're not in our presidential po- politics cycle right now in August. We're not a highly contested state. Uh, we don't have that many electoral votes, blah, 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 blah. There's all kinds of reasons why there isn't, you know, a John Kasich, uh, Kasich office opening up across the street from you right now. There's why there isn't uh, a Martin O'Malley uh, something something happening, you know, in, in the town green of Madison. Because it's just not going on in Connecticut in August of the off year. But it is with Bernie Sanders. So what's happening with you guys? Why, why are you uh, organizing so early? Early and so excitedly. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I too am just back from vacation, so I get back in the uh, back in the groove here. Uh, what I was originally a part of, Ready for Warren, uh, which uh, went on for about a year this past year through the winter. Uh, they uh, we had a, a like a meet up with her and maybe 20, 25 people here at the office in Torrington. Uh, as that wound down, it uh, became more of a sort of ready for ready for Bernie, feel the burn. So to answer your question directly, on July 29th, um, uh, that was a Wednesday evening. They had uh, a nationwide, again, for back of a lo- lack of a better term, like a meetup. I had expected about 35 people here at the office we, here in Torrington. We had over 80. We couldn't get in the door. And the the most interesting part was, again, having done this more than 35 years, as Leo has, hello, Leo, that uh, here in Democratic politics in Connecticut, 
it, it was amazing the amount of new people that had come out on a summer night at 7 o'clock to participate in a national Bernie Sanders meetup. I understand yesterday in, uh, in Portland, Oregon, they had 28,000 people came out to see him. Uh, there's, a, there's a movement. There's an excitement. There's a passion. Uh, there's a belief in, in Bernie, feeling the burn. And right. it's awesome. That's the phrase. So uh, Leo Canty, uh, after uh, many years as a union leader and uh, a political figure and uh, a sometime candidate for office, you, had, you quit all that and you had climbed to the top of a mountain. You were living in a cave. You were painting. You were just not really thinking about any of this kind of stuff. Uh, and now suddenly you're back. You're down from the mountaintop. Uh, you're not eating locusts and honey anymore. So what's ha- what happened? Why is Bernie Sanders uh, getting you back into the flow? Well, it's it's not about me, Colin. It's about uh, having a candidate running for president who's got the, the best shot of making the changes that most Americans want to see. I mean, we have we struggle with uh, right on the top of the list is that big wage gap, and he's supporting minimum wage and trying to get uh, take money out of politics and do a lot of the things that that people are frustrated with that we've lost control of our own democracy that that's been handed over. Um, you know, I've been waiting most of my life trying to find people to do that, but uh, now I have the opportunity, so it didn't take me long at all to uh, come off the mountaintop and do that. And then, uh, hello back to you, Audrey. Glad to glad to see you're one of many people that are getting yeah. plugged in. A- absolutely, absolutely. And what was exciting uh, for at our event was we had a surprise special guest, uh, Bill Curry. So, uh, and it, we I didn't know he was he was coming. He traveled all the way out here to Torrington, and it, it was he he spoke to the group. It was it was fabulous, just yeah. fabulous. He'll go anywhere. It's like just having a bear in your yard or something like that. I mean, it's just increasingly common as the wildlife population gets out of control here. I wouldn't make too much of having Bill Curry there. Well. So, um, <laughs> Leo, so one question that I would have is, is this really about a bunch of activists and union people and you know readers of Bill Curry's uh, left-wing salon column trying to create enough noise to get the attention of Hillary Clinton and push her left on some of these issues before she's cemented into the nomination? I, I think right now there's a whole bunch of people that have been waiting for some reason to become involved. I've met more people in this campaign who say they're first-timers having a house party, first-timers going to an event, first-timers ever donating or paying any attention to a political candidate for president. Um, there, There is a just a growing population of disenfranchised people when it comes to politics. They see a venue, an outlet, a person who they, they trust and can feel uh, can can do something uh, for our country, for our state. Um, and, and I think they see that he's there. And so there are a whole bunch of people that are expressing their passion to get involved early, which by many standards it's early because the machine doesn't get to work. Right. But this is not a machine. These are volunteers. There are over 40 parties in Connecticut on that uh, July okay, 29th. Correct. Right. There were over 1,000 people that showed up, many of whom had never been involved before. You know, we had... Uh, this is just huge, and then if you look at that Portland event, people are showing up there. They're expressing themselves, and the fact of the matter is that this is all happening without a party structure, with no machine. Audrey's a volunteer. I'm a volunteer. We've got pods all over the state of individuals who say, I 
like this guy enough that I'm going to do some work for him and I'm going to go to town and do it. Um, Audrey, another thing that happened in Connecticut that may have disrupted machine politics was 2006, right? You had uh, Ned Lamont challenging mm-hmm. Joe Lieberman. And, and I'm sensing a little bit in the rhetoric and even in some of the names I see popping up here, a little bit of that feeling that at a certain point, uh, one part of the uh, Democratic Party in Connecticut just couldn't live with Joe Lieberman anymore and decided to go with uh, Lamont, even though Lieberman had that position uh, of an incumbent senator, very tough uh, thing to s- turn somebody like that from your own party out of office. Is this a little bit uh, of the Lamont spirit carrying forward? Well, I would say it, it possibly a little bit, but there, you know, I, I was a selectman for ten years on the local level. I think in in politics, you you have you have a local level, you have a state level, you have a national level, and as Leo was saying, there are there are people that get involved on a national level in a national campaign that that don't have never been involved before, and and don't get involved in anything even in a senate, in a senatorial campaign a statewide they're, they're just just not engaged or not interested or not passionate about uh, that level, but something about the presidential level, and remember this is a state, Jerry Brown won the primary, Jesse Jackson won the state primary, the the presidential politics in this state tend to be uh, very progressive, and I think Bernie has, has captured that that spirit along with, I mean, we, we have some huge, again, as Leo was saying, some huge economic disparity issues in this state. We're, we're one of the states that has the largest, if not the largest, disparity between the rich and the poor. Right, and well, um, that's I... a focus, you know, a huge focus at this point in time of, of uh, Senator Sanders' campaign. Audrey, I'm going to have to wrap it up right there. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Tomorrow, speaking of machine politics... Bitsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants and I continue our journey into the dark heart of Bridgeport politics, this time with Mary Jane Foster, one of the candidates for mayor. And it works so very hard for the people of America. Oh, 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 oh. Bernie Sanders. Okay, red 39, blue 42, Huckabee, Huckabee, Huckabee. Hill, is, is, that, is that the play? Because I don't... No, I just have the hiccups.